in you. Want to turn there? Uh, it's going to kind of be, I, I guess, uh, you can kind of describe it as a little bit of a marathon session through the New Testament. We're going to start out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and guess where we're going to end at? John chapter 1, verse 1. And what kind of comes to my mind is any time that, and being a parent and having been a kid, you know, my daddy always had projects going on. I, I think that, uh, Brother Sam, you and my dad would have got along really well. Uh, you always have something to do. You know, you, you, don't, you don't find yourself sitting around or anything. That's a good thing. And, but dad, he would want to do these things, and I would always give the typical uh, young person response, What for? Why are you doing this? What's the point? You know, and anytime you do anything, you kind of want to know why you're doing it. And that, that's not unreasonable, but a lot of times, if I'd have just put a little bit of thought into it, I could have figured out. Uh, but when we talk about the Bible and we read these, these, uh, the Gospels, as they're known, the four of them, uh, that each one was written with a purpose in mind. And they all fit together to complete this uh, chronicle of the life of Jesus Christ and most importantly, His ministry. And while everything is not exactly the same from one to the next to the next, uh, you'll find that they agree and that they each start out in a particular way. So we'll start out with Matthew, uh, who is just the first one in order. I, you know, it, It's not real clear which ones were written uh, in, in exactly what order, but we do know that the Gospel according to John was actually written well after the other three. Many critics of the Bible have often said, well, uh, these books were written several years after Jesus supposedly was crucified. Uh, and, and then that would beg the question to a thinking person, why did they write it when they wrote it? And I'm going to attempt to answer that and help us because, you know, uh, one of the terms, and honestly, I, only in the last five or six years have I really become familiar with it, called Christian apologetics, where you essentially defend the faith. And I think that's really important nowadays to be able to defend the faith and to be able when you go to witness to somebody, when they ask the hard questions, that you're able to give a good answer. And sometimes it takes practice to be able to make that good answer. And so here in the first one, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And verse 2 says, And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Now, if you've read this, you probably are thinking, there's a whole lot of begetting going on. And I want to be getting on to the more inter interesting stuff. But this is actually pretty significant, and I missed it and skipped it a lot. Until that the Lord began to open it up to me. Because the genealogies were so uh, important to Jewish people. And Matthew, when he sat down and wrote this book, uh, he had an audience in mind. Anytime you make a post on Facebook, anytime that you send a picture to Snapchat or Instagram, you have an audience in mind. Anytime that you say anything, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or to a large group of people, you have an audience in mind. And if any of you have ever taken communications, whether in high school or college, you know that anytime you give a speech or make a statement, you have to consider your audience. Matthew's audience were Jewish people. 
And Jewish people love the genealogy. So what does he start with? A genealogy. And he traces right on down from Abraham all the way down to Jesus Christ. Because it's taken as fact. He didn't need to start at Adam and trace his way down because they knew all of that. But he wanted to show that Jesus was in fact the one who fulfilled the prophecy that he would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would be a son of Abraham, that he would be a son of David, and that he was the right heir to the throne of Israel uh, and so he portrays him as a king uh, and he's the king of kings, uh, he's the lord of lords uh, and so in the book of Matthew, uh, if you sit down and read it in that context uh, and start looking for a king uh, a Jewish king, uh, uh, you'll begin to find uh, that he's the king of kings uh, and he is indeed the lord of lords, uh, that what Matthew is saying is behold the king of the Jews And it all culminates with Him being lifted up, all right, but being lifted up on a cross, cursed for man's sake. And so, wow, did Matthew sit down and write this book? Some estimates are anywhere from 30 to 50 years after that Jesus' ascension took place. Why did He wait so long? Well, here's the logical conclusion to that. He didn't just sit on this information. He didn't just say, well, now I'm just going to keep this to me. But rather, he was telling people about it. And he was going around saying, I knew this guy. His name was Jesus. I followed him. Here's what he did. They crucified him. He tells about the deeds that he had done. The major points of his ministry. And then Matthew started noticing that whenever he would get down at the altar and get back up, his knees started popping. Maybe when he looked in his reflection one day, he noticed that his hair was starting to get lighter or thinner. And his hands hurt all the time. And he realized he was getting older. And he realized, I better write this down. For the Lord might tarry His coming and I might die. And so he began to write it down. And what I see, and you know, a lot of people would say, Brother Jeremiah, you have an active imagination. I'm thankful for that. I believe God blessed me with that. It was a curse at times when I was a little kid and I'd watched a scary movie, but nowadays it serves me well. That maybe Matthew said, Lord, how am I gonna how am I gonna tell this? You think about an important writing that he made here to sit down and tell about the Savior. And know that a man 2,000 some odd years later would sit down and read this book mere days after his father had committed suicide seeking comfort. How would that man read this and get anything out of it? And I believe that he prayed and he said, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go about this. And I believe the Holy Spirit told him, show what a king that I am. Show them their king. And so he said, well, in order to establish somebody's right to the throne, I must start with a genealogy. And so he begins the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. The significance of this. He mentions two women in this genealogy, which is atypical for a Jewish genealogy. He mentions one by the name of Ruth and one by the name of Rahab. Those two women are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and they are not Jews. 
But they are two people who believed at the Word of God and were grafted in. That's significant for you and me because we're not Jews. We weren't born Jewish. We haven't been raised to be Hasidic Jews. But rather we're grafted in because we believe upon the Word of the Lord. And so when Matthew wrote this down, he was throwing out those those crumbs from the table to us dogs that the Jews would view us as dogs and giving us that. Let's turn over into the book of Mark in chapter 1, verse 1. Now Mark, he he wrote this a few years down the road. And when he wrote this particular gospel, and to be honest, this was the gospel that God chose to really open up to me. Through James Vernon McGee's uh, Through the Bible series, I got the book uh, and I sat down and I began with my Bible and with that book and read. uh, And I come to a greater understanding of the book of Mark. And the book of Mark is the one I recommend to any young person who's really wanting to begin to study the Bible. And the reason I do is because it was written with Gentiles in mind. People that, that you'll notice it doesn't start out with a genealogy. It doesn't start out portraying a king. It starts out... With action. Because Mark wrote it to the Romans. And the Romans, if they respected anything, they respected action. And so it says in verse 1, chapter 1 of the Gospel according to Mark, it says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He starts out saying, this is the Gospel, the good news. This is the beginning of it. Here's where that Mark chose to begin. Maybe it was... That Matthew's gospel was already floating around. I don't know. But I believe that I see a man who had decided now is the time to write this down. Maybe he was a little bit younger. And he thought, I don't want to wait until I start forgetting all this stuff. I'm going to go ahead and start writing it down. Maybe it took him years to write it down. And he asked and consorted with the Lord and said, Lord, how am I going to start this? And the Lord might have said, you know, I need one geared toward the Romans so that they might believe. And so he begins to write and point it directly at the Romans. You'll notice the second verse, it says, And it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And he starts out and jumps right into the action. He doesn't talk about all of the prophecy and things leading up to it in every little detail. But he says, here is where it starts out at. Here's what it was. And in this book, it says straightway so many times. Meaning Jesus didn't tarry. He didn't wait around. He had a purpose. And He did these things. And He presents Him as a man of action who got the things done that needed to be done. And so Jesus began His ministry. And oh, I would love to just go verse by verse. But time fails us. But what I can tell you, the book of Mark is the shortest one of the Gospels. So there's another bonus. If you want to say that you've read at least one of the Gospels, read the Gospel of Mark. And trust me, it's a page turner. It's interesting. And for a long time, it was the one that I favored and it was because I didn't understand all that other stuff, Brother Sam. I didn't understand uh, uh, the genealogies and a lot of the prophecies and the Levitical law because I hadn't really studied it. But the Gospel according to Mark, what it does is it portrays Jesus as a man who came down into this world on a mission. Did you know that Jesus Christ was the only person who was born for the purpose of dying? It was never intended for man to die. 
But Jesus Christ came into this world to do just that. He marched steadily toward Calvary. When you read the Gospel according to Mark, you'll find that He went from one place, did what He was supposed to do there, and He went straightway to the next one, and to the next one. And He did these things, and He had appointments, and He kept them. And He did all of these things so that these people might be bettered because of it and ultimately receive salvation. Now the interesting thing, if you turn into the Gospel according to Luke, in chapter 1, Verse 1. The Gospel according to Luke is slightly different, but it's more comprehensive. Now, if you've ever been in a class and you come down to the final exam on the class, that's the big question on everybody's mind. Is the test going to be comprehensive? Comprehensive means it cover everything, or does it just cover the most recent stuff? Luke was an educated man. He was a doctor. And so he begins to explain to a man by the name of Theophilus, this is a letter to Theophilus, but this is also a chronicle of Jesus Christ. And it goes out, and and verse 1, now it gets a little wordy, but if you slow down and chew your food really good, you can understand it. It says, verse 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed amongst us, All he's saying is that other people have written about this. And written about the things that we, the believers, talking about the early church, that they believe. He goes on and says in verse 2, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. He's saying that we've talked amongst ourselves about this. We've witnessed these things firsthand. He goes on and said, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect Understanding, meaning that I was there, I saw these things, the Lord imparted His wisdom to me. He says, To write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. He's essentially saying, Here is the last bit of notes that you're going to need, Theophilus. He's given this to him so that he can have something that he can refer back to. Kind of like a teacher giving notes in class. And I know kids don't like to take notes. I never like to take notes. In college, it'll make you take notes. But if you don't take notes, you generally don't do very well. And so what Luke is saying is he's saying, I've written this for you, Theophilus. But I don't think Theophilus was the only one. But rather what he does now is you have more miracles recorded in the Gospel according to Luke than any of the others. You have more detail in the things that go on. The the birth of Jesus Christ was now on this wise. And you'll find that when Luke recorded it, and I love what C.S. Lewis said about the Gospel according to Luke. He said that I'm a man well acquainted with fables and myths and legends. And he said the time is always indeterminate. It's always once upon a time, or a long time ago, or back right after the earth's crust hardened, or whatever it is. But he says, but Luke established an exact time during the time of Caesar Augusta when he said that the whole world had to be taxed and you can go back in secular history and you can find that very time. That's, it's not a myth and it's not a fable. Myths and fables don't have this level of detail. But what he's essentially saying is he's saying these things that Jesus did, they are important. Because he goes on, verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, 
and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Talking about specific people, not in the abstract notion. He's referring exactly to people that Theophilus would be like, I could go and talk to people that knew these people. And while we might not be able to do that, we can go back in histories. And Roman historians recorded that under a governor named Pontius Pilate that there was a man named Jesus Christ who was put to death on the cross. Number one, that establishes that he was in fact a real person. Just as much evidence that he lived as George Washington. Now where everybody gets a little discretionary is what happened after he died. You see, I'm well acquainted with history. And every person I've ever read about in history, once they die, that's the end of the story. Oh, they might talk about them some and things that happened after them. Things that they might have set in motion, but they themselves don't do anything. I went to Mount Vernon a few years ago, Faith and I did, and I got to see the original burial place of George Washington. The original crypt is right there. I didn't ask to go in to the crypt or anything. I actually moved him to another place. But imagine asking that and saying, well, let's make sure that he's actually still in there. And his bones are still in there. But you see, with Jesus Christ, Luke tells the story, a comprehensive story of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't end with his death. Really, that's just when the good bits begin. Because Luke saw fit to write another book, known as the book of the Acts of the Apostles, after this. It's the sequel. It's the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, I guess you could say, or part 2. But he wrote this so that believers would be reinforced with what that they had believed. Because it says, even as they, verse 2, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order. Saying, I need to reinforce this. I need to write it down so that people will have it and it will be an untarnished word. So that it won't be hearsay. Because you know how hearsay goes. One person tells another and the story gets changed. They embellish, they add or take something away from it. And Luke said, no, I'm an eyewitness. I have a responsibility. And as an apostle, it is my right to write this down. So that it can be an eyewitness accounting. Now turn with me, if you will, into the Gospel according to John. And this is the one that originally, when I read it, seemed like I missed so much. And how that John, we do know, tradition and history holds that this was written later than all the other three. John's not trying to establish a record of things that happened during the life of Jesus. And I believe it's because he'd already read the book of Luke. And he said, well, I don't need to rehash all that. And then maybe he thought, well, maybe I should write to the Jews. Well, no, Matthew already covered that ground. Well, maybe I should write to the Romans. But no, Mark had covered that. So what he decided to do, and he actually spells it out later in the Gospel, we'll not take time to turn there, but he said that so many things that Jesus did, if you'd written them all down, 
He says, these aren't complete. These aren't a perfect record of everything that Jesus did. He said, if that had been so, the world couldn't contain the book. Meaning that He did so much stuff that nobody could remember all of it. And even if you could, you couldn't write it all down. That's a lot of stuff. And He says, but we've written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so how then does he decide to start his gospel out? Because I can tell you, anybody that's ever written a paper of any kind knows you got to get them with that first sentence. you got to get them in that first paragraph. And John, this, this is not anything that's new. This existed even back then that when John sat down to write this, maybe after having been boiled in oil and beaten and, and reviled by so many and with gnarled hands that could barely grip the writing utensil. He started out with these words. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Step number one, he said, I must establish that Jesus Christ is eternal. He was the Word, and in the beginning He was there. A lot of people would say, was He really there? Can you turn back into Genesis and see where it paints a picture of Jesus? Well, John says He was the Word. Verse 2, it says, The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He was there at Genesis chapter 1 when it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And it said that the earth was void. And without form, and the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the deep. And then the first time that God speaks, He says, Let there be light. In the beginning was the Word. John says, Nothing was made without the Word. God spoke it into existence. (laughs) Oh, I could teach you a science lesson right now that coincides with the Word of God. Because that voidness and that chaos, that emptiness... That's entropy. That's things in disorder and disarray. And it is a law in physics. Not theory. Not something that everybody just kind of believes. It is proved out to be irrefutable. That everything goes from an ordered state to a disordered state. And the only way that it becomes more ordered is by an input of energy. And so in order for everything to go from that voidness and that lack of form, there had to be an input of energy. And the input of energy was let there be light that the Word came out and these things happened. And God went on and began to make the land and began to make animals and began to make all the things that John writes about here that says everything was made and there was nothing that wasn't made without Him. That Jesus Christ was right there at the beginning and John is saying Jesus Christ is eternal and He is the Son of the Most High God. He goes on in this book and talks about John. He says in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Essentially saying he was the herald of the eternal King. Saying at the appointed time he's going to come. And John records that when Jesus shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist, that John points and says, Behold. Lamb of God 
which taketh away the sin of the world. Because in this book what it shows, and in the Gospels preceding, whenever you get into the Beatitudes, and whenever you get into the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice that Jesus begins to take the law and to elevate it. That John recorded in verse 17, if you want to jump to there, it says, For the law was given by Moses, and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What he's essentially saying is you're condemned and then Jesus Christ came along and took away your condemnation. No different than in chapter 8 of this same book when Jesus looks at the Pharisees and He tells them, you're slaves. And they said, we've never been in bondage. What do you mean we're slaves? And He said, you're servants of sin. You are enslaved to sin. And the only way to be free is for the King to set you free. It makes me think about when Abraham Lincoln said now is the appointed time and he swung the hammer of justice and signed the Emancipation Proclamation where that it utters these words henceforth forevermore free because he had the authority to do it and nobody could stop him. Jesus Christ has the authority, oh hallelujah, to set somebody free and to break a chain and to break a bond, the bonds of sin. He has that authority. And John was saying, the law condemned you, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ to set the world free. You know, I find myself in this day and time, we're all worried about what's contagious. And it's not just amongst us, but every time we shake hands, we think. If you were to be standing up here close enough that my spit would be spreading out toward you, you'd be thinking, I hope he ain't sick. But how contagious are we when it comes to the Word of God? How ready are we to spread that? Are we even infected? Because the thing is, in order to spread a virus, there's got to be a lot of it in you, and you've got to have some to spare. How much of the Word of God is in us that we have some to spare. And that we believe so much so that Brother Sam, if they come and knocked on my door and said, Jeremiah, did you have service on July 19th in 2020 when that you weren't supposed to? I don't know that that's the fact, but if I did that, would I have enough to look at them and say, yes, I did? They said, well, we're placing you under arrest. Well, what better thing to be arrested for than that? You see, because I believe this Word with every fiber of my being, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Most High God. I believe that He came into this world that hated Him. It was mean to Him every step of the way. More innocent than a newborn baby. Walked steps similar to mine. I've had bad days. I've had dark times. I've been tempted and fail. Fail into temptation. He was tempted at all times just like I am. But he sinned not. He went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And then at the end of the 40 days, Satan himself came to tempt him. And he stood the test. Not for Jesus' own benefit, but for yours. When he began to elevate the law, he was saying, you need a Savior. This world needs to know that they need a Savior. Because in this same Gospel in the third chapter, 
And everybody knows John 3.16. But John 3.17 talks about you're already condemned. You're already dead in your trespasses and sin. And without this man Jesus, the Word made flesh, you can't be saved. A lot of people would say, well, that's rather presumptuous, isn't it? Maybe so. But it's the only name whereby men can be saved. In the 14th chapter of this same book, Jesus began to talk about heaven. He said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Uh, he said, in the place that I'm going, you know, and you know the way. And Thomas looked at him and said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. This is Brother Jeremiah's paraphrase. And Jesus looked at him and said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No person can get to heaven without Jesus Christ. Not my own children. Not the best person that's ever lived. Mahatma Gandhi or whoever else that you want to talk about as a humanitarian. Without the salvation of Jesus Christ, they will end up in hell. The saddest notion to me of all is how filled that hell is with pretty good people. People that give you the shirt off of their back. People that are some of the nicest people you've ever met. But because that they omitted Jesus Christ. A lot of people, here, here's the thing I've heard people say, I'm just not ready. I told a young man one time, I said, try that when death finds you. Say, I'm not ready. And death will say, you had time. You see, because this Jesus right here, this eternality. Now I can tell you, I love my children and I'd do anything that I could for them. But when it comes their time, I can't cross over with them. I can't take them there. But the one who has already been there and come back, He will be there to receive you. Oh, I love how that it was when Stephen... He had burst a flame with the Holy Ghost and he'd done everything right and they took him and decided to stone him to death. And while he's dying, he's making petition for them to be forgiven for what they're doing. The very men that are killing him. And then as he's dying, he looks up and says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father because Jesus saw Him. He sees me. He sees you. You may be suffering right now. He sees you. He's there for you. And I can tell you this, without accepting salvation in Jesus Christ, I don't care how good a person is, how much money they've got, hell is the only other option. Because I'll read John 3.16 just to jog your memory. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You know what that tells me? That without Him, you're not saved. You're going to perish. You're condemned. And the Apostle Paul, when he talked about a relationship to Jesus Christ, he said it has to be a continual Renewal. Renew it every day. Make it new. Yeah, I've been to a lot of church services. I've preached a lot of sermons. 
One of the hardest things for me to do is the Easter sermon because I don't want you to think that I'm just going to get up here and preach the exact same sermon every single time. I don't really have anything new to give you. It's all been done. But God can use me to open it to your heart because this Word is alive. This Word is made flesh in Jesus Christ. And there is a world out there that is condemned. They're running around. I still, I, I marvel at the fact that they'll wear the mask, they'll use the hand sanitizer, they'll social distance, they'll flee from that death. That is not as certain as what some would have us believe. But when it comes to fleeing from the wrath of God, they won't even open a book or go a few miles down the road to a church. A friend of mine actually went around and counted the number of churches in Wayne County, West Virginia. 212 churches in Wayne County alone. That's roughly, if you take the square mileage of Wayne County, that's one church every 10 square miles. So that means that most people have less than five miles to travel to get to church. And the churches are empty. My, my, my. And the saddest thing is, he's still in the saving business. People can still be saved. Let's ask ourselves in the days ahead. I know I've been asking myself this a lot. God has had this on my mind immensely of late. What are we doing to further the kingdom? Because here's the thing. Jesus sent out his disciples and he told them, you're going to go into towns, they're not even going to let you in. And he said, and if they don't, you go out and as a show, you wipe the dust off and tell them, nevertheless, the kingdom of heaven has come to you. It's not your job to save them. It's not your job to drag them into church. But it is your job to tell them. That is our responsibility and our right to tell them. And as long as we're able, that's what we need to do. Ever how that we do it. But don't be foolish. Do it with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Pray a good deal before you go. Read before you go. Prepare. Because they may ask the difficult questions. Because a lot of people love to try to confound a Bible-believing Christian. You've got to be ready. Or you might come away confounded. And I tell you, I believe this book. Don't let anybody ever make you doubt what is written in here. And why it was written. The men that wrote it were, did so with the utmost seriousness. And they died for their belief. John, <laughs> he might not have died as a direct result of it, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Paul died for his belief. Peter died for his belief. There are so many martyrs. Men won't die for a lie. They'll die for the truth. I can tell you, you go to putting the pain to somebody and you go to taking their life. If they're lying, they'll change their mind. Nobody's that good of a liar. These men believed in this and they died for it. We should be willing to do the same. Let's all stand and get a song.